Good morning everybody, welcome back to my channel. Thanks so much for joining this morning. I'm honoured and excited to have William Balbine. He is the general partner at SOS Ventures. He has a whole slew of things that he does. In fact, he does so many amazing things, I'm going to ask him to introduce himself a little bit. Morning William. Hey, how's it going? Good. Good, Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Hey, yeah, fun. William's in Shanghai folks. Oh, okay, so 3 p.m. you just mentioned, right? So, so yeah. Cool, well, thank you so much for joining us and taking some time out of your busy day to share some knowledge. Really appreciate it, William. So, happy to, happy to. So tell the audience that don't know you, I mean, I, I, I know you so well and I'm a big fan, but for those that don't know you, maybe give people a little bit of background. Sure. Um, so American grew up on the East Coast, um, half uh, Chinese, half Scottish, uh, parents are both American. Um, have been uh, living in Asia about 25 years now. Um, first came out in 1993 uh, to uh, study Mandarin. Actually, I didn't grow up speaking Mandarin uh, that well, but I uh, tried to work on that. Uh, I, I can say I probably did not succeed. I, I spent too much time uh, chasing business and not enough time doing my homework. Um, but I've uh, been doing tech investment uh, since 1996. Uh, my goal was always to work for the government. I worked for the U.S. government for a year at Curity. Uh, so I've been doing tech investment um, since the 1996. Uh, first 11 years as an equity research analyst, my job was to explain Asia tech companies to international, mostly Western investors. Uh, one of the hardest things to do is to try and explain Alibaba B2B uh, to uh, folks in America. Uh, for their IPO. So I spent a lot of time in 2005, 2006 uh, doing that. Um, and that's uh, probably the most famous company uh, that I worked on uh, the IPO for. Um, but I was really well known for uh, stock picking uh, and we covered the entire uh, regional internet, regional telecom equipment, and really China tech media telecom. Uh, and uh, I wrapped that up in early 07. I had a choice. You know, I could either go to a hedge fund or I could go to early stage VC, and they're very, very different. Um, I had done a few angel investments, so I kind of got the bug. Uh, I had no idea what I was doing. Uh, just because you understand how all the pieces fit together does not mean uh, that you know how to help early stage entrepreneurs uh, get from A to B to C. Uh, but, you know, jumped off. Um, we formed uh, SoftBank China India. And I ran uh, China on this for SoftBank on the investment side. Also did some deals in Southeast Asia, uh, specifically uh, Vietnam. Uh, and um, four years there, then another four years as a, one of the founding managing uh, directors for Singtel Innovate, which is a pure corporate VC. Uh, and then six years ago, joined SOSV uh, to run global internet and software investments, uh, where we help startups from all around the world including Asia, uh, expand to Asia. Uh, most of our portfolio companies are in Asia. Uh, we help them grow up in their home country and then go cross-border uh, and expand into other countries. Uh, we can get into that a little bit later. Thanks for having me. No, that's, that's uh, wow. I mean, when you describe uh, all the things you've done, 11 years, four years, you look too young, William. What, what's, uh, the, what's the secret? I've been doing tech investment, what, 20, 24 years now? Right, wow, yeah. Is it drink lots of water and the, the your good humid air in Shanghai yeah. is keeping you young? Uh, it offsets the, uh, we, we, we transferred our travel budget into an alcohol budget. And oh. Hydrate before happy hour. Wow, that's such a good company policy. I think that, uh, that, that everyone needs to do that probably right now. But so, um, what's happening today? T tell people that aren't in Shanghai what's happening in, in that part of the world, what you're focused on, what you're seeing innovation-wise. Sure. I mean, uh, so, you know, China's number two economy in the world. Um, it's got more unicorns than to the U.S. Uh, it's grown up quite differently than, than Internet uh, and uh, platforms in, in North America and Western Europe. Um, and that sort of separation, that difference is becoming even greater now um, with the, the recent tensions. Um, so it's uh, we're actually seeing, actively seeing uh, decoupling happening. Um, and uh, the China internet used to be you know, separate from the rest of the world internet. Now it's becoming even more so. Um, we think that this is a shame, uh, and, but it, it means that a China accelerator where we, we help global startups enter China, penetrate China, succeed in China, where Google failed, Facebook failed, Amazon got its ass kicked. 
Um, we're helping startups enter China, um, both uh, early stage, but also sort of like mid stage. Uh, and so um, we, our, our service, we were an investor, but the service that we provide is even more important now uh, than before, because it is very difficult to ignore the number two economy in the world. Yeah, and it's, it's surprising how many people are still ignoring the number two economy in the world. It, it feels like a fortress that, that, that a lot of brands can't break into. Exactly for your point around Amazon and Facebook and Google, it feels like uh, you know, it, it's not an easy thing to do. Out of interest, why, why do you think Amazon failed in China? I mean, Facebook is obvious maybe from a, um, a political perspective, but you know, why Amazon? Why did they not make it? Yeah, I think um, they didn't move fast enough. They're too slow. Uh, in the market, um, they didn't really give um, the, uh, the the resources. They didn't have the resources uh, that the local competition had, uh, and the way people buy is very different than the way people buy everywhere else. So Amazon um, got it; they didn't get its butt kicked. They learned from that uh, to for some extent. So they're trying not to make those same mistakes uh, in India, uh, where they're a leader and they've put down you know deep roots and are our market leader. Um, but uh, for China, um, the way people purchase, uh, the expectations, uh, the way uh, people make money is very different uh, in Alibaba versus an Amazon model. You know, Alibaba um, gives all the data to the brands. Alibaba is a platform uh, that actually actively partners uh, with the brands, whereas the Amazon model um, is to uh, control everything. Um, and uh, keep as much data as possible, uh, own the customers, uh, and the brands um, you know, are just there to be replaced over time as Amazon rolls out Amazon Basics and other of their own brands, uh, especially for kind of high volume commodity type items. Um, so most of the global brands, you know, they hate Amazon, uh, whereas Alibaba, the big global brands uh, still like them. Yeah, that was a big thing in the US recently where Jeff Bezos was admitting that as soon as they see any sort of decent sales on a product on Amazon, then Amazon try to replicate that product and replace them. So yeah. it's, it's not... Mean, we have entrepreneurs sitting there on Amazon and uh, basically Amazon is like buying their product and then reselling it on Amazon to their customers at a lower price. Uh, and you can just sit there watching Amazon screw you yeah. uh, live. Yeah. Uh, and one of our entrepreneurs was watching this happen while Jeff Bezos was testifying uh, in the U.S. the Congress. Uh, so it's a, it's it, you have to depend, figure out what the model is. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Amazon model, uh, which is to some extent similar to the JD, JD model, uh, doesn't work. I mean, JD still doesn't really make that much money. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting when, you know, I, I lived 20 years in Asia and spent a lot of time in China, of course, and, and, I've, and I've spent 20 years of my life in, in Europe. And it's interesting because when, when you, what you're describing there, I think, will surprise a lot of people because a lot of people will see, like, the Western companies as the good companies and the China companies as almost like this evil company that's, you know, monopoly kind of idea, you know. So it's interesting when you describe the difference between some of the Chinese brands attitude towards their clients, the brands, and the Amazon yeah. attitude towards their clients, the brands. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, it actually turns out, and, and this has been my experience, that Chinese companies are a lot more ethical than the PR allows them uh, to have an image of being. You know, I, I don't know if that's your opinion as well. But. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the behavior here is all nice and fluffy, right? Uh, this is one of the most competitive markets that could be arguably the most competitive um, uh, markets in the world. Um, people here have sharp elbows, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, extremely sharp elbows. So, so this is not a walk in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to be competitive, you know, Google has gone from don't be evil to we're super evil uh, and uh, we don't care who knows it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. So Google uh, got taken down in a, in a big EU court case uh, for uh, monopolistic practices because they were making all the phone brands download and install the entire uh, Google um, you know, suite of services, right? Uh, Gmail and everything. And like, if you didn't download and, and preload in the factory all the Google suite of services, then the Android would work. Um, so EU said you can't do that, pay a big fine, and now um, the, the OEMs, the brands, the cell phone brands can actually pick and choose 
which Google services to pre-install. But as soon as that came out, you know, Google sent a letter to all the Asian cell phone brands saying, hey, don't think that this applies to you. You guys still need to put in our entire bundle of all of our Google services, uh, and if you don't, we'll shut you down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so um, it's, uh, it's an interesting world we live in. Uh, and uh, um, we try to help you know, entrepreneurs, they're usually not young, actually the average age is about 36, 37 mm-hmm. of uh, the people we invest in, uh, but young companies uh, survive in uh, a market or a bunch of markets that are extremely competitive. Things are not fair. Uh, and uh, you will lose unless you, as an entrepreneur, uh, have an unfair advantage. Uh, we try and help out with that. Uh, at SOSB, China Accelerator for Enterprise and China Market Entry, and MOX, our mobile accelerator for Southeast Asia and South Asia, which is uh, for mobile consumer, consumer internet. Now, I, I was just reading all the investments you guys have made. It's just incredible, the impact you're having. It's, it's mind-blowing. But it's also very interesting what you were just saying there. I think a lot of people that are listening that want to get investment, they think, you know, if, if they're past 20, the boat, they've missed the boat. But it, it's not true. I, I, my, also, my experience also that most investments are actually with people in their 30s. They, they've got some experience and, and, and actually they've got an idea of often industry uh, knowledge as well, which helps, right? So it's interesting the average is 36 years old. That, that's quite useful information yeah. for a lot of people out there, I think. Yeah, I mean, we, we try not to subscribe to the Silicon Valley ages bullshit. Um, so we look for people who can uh, execute. Um, and, you know, we've, we've backed uh, CEOs that are over 60. Uh, it doesn't happen all the time, um, but we've done it before. Um, and one thing that's, we don't have a mandate for this, um, but we're 40% of the founder, you know, the, the companies that uh, we invested, we just crossed over 1,000 investments, uh, have a, a female co-founder. Uh, and so uh, um, usually it's because they make money. Um, we, we, you know, they look like they're going to succeed. Uh, again, we don't have a mandate um, for uh, backing uh, diversity. Uh, it just happens to be uh, a good way to, to, to make money. And hopefully, um, people will start to uh, stop. They'll stop undervaluing uh, more diverse startups um, versus uh, uh, what you see the, the sort of traditional kind of bro culture of uh, people in their 20s uh, hacking away. That's not to say that young people can't start it up. Uh, it's just that the vast majority of our startups the average age is 36, and most of the people are, are somewhere in their late 20s to their and into their 40s and 50s. Um, I was interested in your view, not to put you on the spot, but your view on, on Uber and their entry into China, because I, I mean, I have, I have my view on it. I, I think Uber went into China, and some people say they failed, but they ended up doing a partnership there and ended up having equity in something that did quite well. So, but what's your view? So, um, you know, I was using it every day. On the front lines, um, and you got to remember SOSB Sean O'Sullivan S O S. He patented, and we have the patents. We hold the patents to ride sharing in America. Forty percent of Uber and Lyft's U.S. revenue is in violation of our, our, our patent portfolio, uh, and um, that's the difference between like an idea and execution. Uh, Sean had the idea, Uber and Lyft did the execution. Um, so we're pretty uh, well uh, aware. You know the model. Um, now the challenge is, you know, is it a level playing field? And this is the first time uh, in a long time where it was a, a basically a level playing field. Um, you know, Uber had their connections. Um, the local, the other local players, DD, had their connections. You know, some governments shut down DD. Other local governments shut down Uber. Um, they both had about the same amount of money, uh, and they went to war uh, and uh, they fought to a draw. Uh, which is uh, for an international company in China, that's a win because every single other major international company that's coming to China or minor, basically most of all the major ones got their butts kicked. Uh, but Uber fought to a draw and not that bad. They put in $2 billion, you know, they got $7 billion worth of stock and that $7 billion worth of stock is probably worth a lot more right now because uh, uh, DD is basically pretty, I mean, there's some competition here, but they're, they're by hands down the market leader. Uh, so I would put that up as a win. Uh, for international, um, they had uh, data science and AI that you would not believe, uh, and DD uh, moved fast and they were scrappy. Uh, so um, 
in their battle with Didi, uh, with Uber, Didi learned a huge amount that they're now applying both in China and outside of China. Um, but they were, you know, they're outclassed on the technical side, on the UX uh, side, on the customer side uh, by Uber. But on the other side, you know, they had uh, a scrappy team uh, moving very, very, very quickly. Mm. So um, I, I'd say that uh, Uber did not lose. I agree with you. It's quite the opposite. Um, they fought to a draw, uh, which in the end is a win. Again, it, it, it surprises me on the PR side when you hear, you know, I talk to anybody here about Uber in China and they're like, oh, they failed. You know, I just, I'm just kind of shocked when people don't realise or understand what actually happened. It's not that they failed. I think doing partnerships in China is actually very smart. The mistake maybe was that they, they didn't do the partnership from day one. They wasted a couple of billion trying to do it on their own, right? So, I mean, it, it's a lot of, like a lot of people say that Uber uh, got kicked out of China by, I mean, I'm very Google. Google got kicked out of China by the, the Chinese government. That's actually not true. Um, they're in China. They're operating in China. That revenue in China it wasn't easy operating in China, but they're in China. They got their asses kicked. They were from like sixty something percent market share down to ten percent, um, and then they got hacked by someone. You know, and I think they, they kind of knew who it was, and they got angry. Sergey Brin was like, "Screw this! I don't want to deal with this." And um, and they uh, actually just uh, basically decided not to follow local law anymore, um, and decided to leave. Um, and that was a conscious decision, um, but it's not like uh, okay, one day they're here, the next day they're not. It was a conscious decision to uh, you know to basically uh, shift uh, you know the servers to uh, the Hong Kong, where that's where they ended up doing, uh, and not following uh, Chinese law. Uh, and uh, the most people forget is that when they finally did that, you know, the, their market share was a ski slope beforehand in the six months, twelve months beforehand. They're getting their butts kicked by Biden. Yeah, again, I mean, I talk to a lot of my friends in China um, on Facebook Messenger. You know, people are like, how is that possible? Because Facebook's blocked, but they don't understand the VPN and how, you know, people still use all these tools. They just work their way around. Maybe they're not as politically uh, driven as, as they are in, say, the US, but that's probably a good thing. Look what's happened to the US thanks to Facebook's political piece. So, uh, but I, I'm talking to people all the time on Facebook in China. So it, it, it's definitely a, a little bit of a misconception that these, these platforms don't exist in these markets. Well, yeah, I mean, most people have VPN if they want to watch movies in the past, right? But now most of that content is actually available in China. So there's less reason mm. uh, to have a VPN, but you know, VPNs uh, work here. I've got I'm on one right now. Wow. Uh, so I want to make sure this, uh, this streaming works. Um, yeah. It, 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 I mean, that's another thing that people don't quite understand as well about China, I think, that how, how the internet works. I guess that's why you know, when, when brands like Amazon go into China, they try to copy and paste their existing model and it doesn't work. They don't adapt, right, to your point earlier. Do, yep. do, do you, um, you mentioned um, earlier um, SoftBank um, and you were kind of involved with, with SoftBank uh, What's their reputation like now? What's 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 happening with SoftBank after the we we uh, I guess the whole we for that fiasco? It's um, what's their image like now? I mean, uh, to be very frank, I don't follow it. I mean, I, I, I was there two thousand seven to two thousand ten. Uh, it was our own fund. We had two LPs. Uh, half the of our hundred million dollar fund was from SoftBank. The other half was from Cisco. Mm. Uh, and that uh, was in the old days where uh, SoftBank used to back early stage fund managers uh, and lend the name and, and lend capital. Um, um, we ended up not doing a second fund, um, like, you know, uh, and, and so uh, then this is way, this is like years and years and years and years before our stock bank vision, which is a very, very different animal. Uh, so I, you know, soft bank vision is still active, they're still investing, um, maybe not the crazy check sizes, uh, but they've got some... Um, Pretty big stakes and some pretty interesting companies still. Uh, their focus on AI uh, is good. Uh, they've got you know uh, headwinds uh, in terms of some very large investments and in, you know WeWork uh, and uh, Oyo, uh, which are very public. Uh, but that's not the whole portfolio. It's a big chunk of the portfolio, but that's not the whole portfolio. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but the entire idea of money as a weapon, uh, which is what uh, was is really um, uh, turned into uh, a, a, a investment strategy in China, mm -hmm. where uh, and, you know you, you have 
great product, okay, fine. Uh, but you use money as a weapon to get all the users uh, as quickly as possible. Um, don't worry about making any money. Don't worry about revenue. Mm -hmm. It's all about customer acquisition. Mm -hmm. And then you make money over the long term. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the public stumbles uh, of, of SoftBank Vision have really called into question uh, the strategy of using money as a weapon. Um, we think that's generally a good thing um, because, uh, you know, as early stage investors, are, we don't have that much money. Uh, but um, uh, but it, it, it really uh, created uh, a lot of just real big changes in the later stage growth VC market. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and so you've got some of these uh, growth VCs that were raising huge amounts of money. Um, we'll see what happens yeah. now that uh, they don't have to deal so much with billion, $2 billion checks anymore. Yeah. You know, the vision is doing more like $100, 300 million checks. It's still a lot of money. Um, but there are now a lot, of, a lot of players that can write a $100, 200 million check yeah. in, the, in the growth. Um, and then you've got PE guys coming down, private equity. Um, you know, we've got private equity companies coming into our startups within a year of demo day. Mm. Um, uh, that is really actually quite strange. Um, the funniest thing is when private equity investors are investing in a, in a Series A in a startup and they're bringing private equity terms. Um, but uh, we've helped our entrepreneurs protect themselves against some of the, these PE private equity style terms, which are really uh, quite uh, non-standard. Uh, in, uh, in venture, uh, and as of Q2 pitch book, we are the number one most active VC in the world. Uh, so we have some uh, small authority uh, in terms of uh, you know, helping educate uh, some of these later stage investors coming down early as to what is the market standard. As someone that spent um, you know, 10, 10 years, you've been operating, I think, or, or so as a as a SOS Ventures. I mean, it's, it's the, the scale of, of the business and the achievements you've had. What impresses me the most is that you, you know, I think a lot of people when they get an early stage investor don't realise how important that early stage investor is to protect them, as you just explained, to show them the yeah. ropes. Because quite often they're first time or even second time founders, maybe they're third time founders, but never raised in the scale that you're talking about. So your education support of them is so crucial. What I'm amazed at with your business is the reputation you have is just unbelievably good. And that's really hard to do at scale. You know, because I, I, I know myself as a founder, it's very hard to keep founders happy. You know, like, there's a lot of, give me more, give me more, uh, as a founder, right? So, so the fact that you've managed to do it at scale and have such an amazing reputation is, is not an easy achievement. Out of interest, how, you know, what, what, how do you do that? Um, well, we don't give them anything. Um, we try not to give you know, like the fish in the fishing pole. We try to teach them how to use the fishing pole uh, as opposed to giving the fish um, because uh, fish they just eat one little fishing pole so they, they can go catch something uh, over a lifetime, right? And so um, that uh, we try to give them tools uh, and then uh, help them use those tools. Um, our approach, which is VC, we invest. Then we live together for like six, three to six months, three months plus three months. Uh, then we invest again. We continue to support. Is the most labor-intensive approach to investing uh, I can imagine. And um, you know, it, it, it just uh, living with people uh, is uh, you know really, really, is, especially you know, it, it, it's a it's a lot of time and it's a lot of effort. Mm -hmm. uh, we're not a puppy factory. We're not trying to do a hundred or hundred and fifty companies a batch. You know, we're doing eight, 10, 12 a batch. Uh, we're spending six months with them, you know, uh, the teams, uh, and uh, we're really living together. Mm -hmm. um, and through that, uh, yes, we can, we can add value. Uh, we help them uh, learn. Uh, but the other thing is that um, we uh, help build a, a sense of uh, trust uh, and uh, a working relationship. And, uh, and that, that working relationship is really based on um, giving them uh, the tools uh, to uh, help drive their business. I mean, there's, there's growth hacking, you can read about growth, um, but when you're doing it side by side and then running those experiments, um, for our last batch during COVID, uh, China Accelerator, we had the largest batch ever, is 14 companies. Well, I'm not gonna do that again anytime soon. Uh, but our internal goal between March 15th and June 15th demo day was to drive 3X net revenue growth. Uh, 
and uh, we ended up drive, helping the companies drive four and a half x, four hundred fifty percent revenue growth in three months. Um, now, obviously, a lot of them off of a small base, uh, but seven of the fourteen companies went profitable. Then, mm-hmm. uh, so our goal uh, is to help them, you know, get from that uh, sort of like uh, A to B, uh, literally accelerate them. Um, but what we found out is that we don't just drop them off into the ocean and leave. Um, uh, what uh, what's really helped uh, is that we continue working with them, uh, with the teams over time, uh, especially if they want to continue to engage. Um, and so uh, that's uh, that's actually really made a difference, uh, especially for some of our deep tech um, entrepreneurs who are PhDs um, and sometimes um, are most most uh, more used to uh, talking to their computer uh, than they are to uh, human beings. Hmm. Is that a, a new trend to you know, get people to profitability? Because I feel like you know, maybe not far, yeah. even before COVID, there was this whole thing like blitz scaling, kind of the Reed Hoffman uh, point yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and the SoftBank point. And I agree with everything you said about SoftBank, by the way. I, I think they were, they, they, they've done amazing things and they will continue to do amazing things. A lot of people have written them off, but I think they've, they've got a lot of potential to still make a big impact. In, as they have already made, frankly, in, in the startup world. But do you think there's, that's, that's a change, is it, for, for, for the, the model now? It's good to see businesses increasing their revenues. Is that, is that something you're, you're focused more on now? Um, so we've been focused for the last six years since I joined Time Accelerator and uh, founded Mox five years ago. Um, you know, I joined SOSB six years ago as the, uh, the fifth GP. Um, and uh, the reason why we had to go profitable is no one will get invested in our companies. Right, uh, the amount of fundraising we, our companies have done, especially in the early years, was minimus. We can't tap the massive amounts of revenue be available because most of our companies are offshore companies, right? Uh, and you know, foreigners operating in China generally have a very bad reputation. Uh, there's, you know, most people can't uh, invest in them uh, or won't invest in them. Uh, and then cross border across Southeast Asia, South Asia. I mean, we're now the number nine most active VC in Southeast Asia and uh, the number five most active VC in India um, uh, for tech in Asia the last uh, 24 months. Um, but um, a lot of these markets are not actually you know, popular VC markets. Um, so the easiest way to raise money is to actually have a real business and not need the money. And once you don't need the money, it's actually pretty easy to get the money, mm. right? Uh, so that's been the strategy. Um, traction first, fundraising later. Uh, and um, usually people in their 30s are not going to starve to death like right away. Uh, and so uh, and it's also good training uh, to, um, you know, to, to, to have to be able to watch every dollar, right? There's a, um, there's a blood scaling thing where you're going out there with a, a machine gun and spraying bullets everywhere. Uh, but if you don't have too many bullets, you have to like learn how to aim. Uh, and so uh, what we uh, really focus on uh, is a data-driven, process-based approach um, to starting up, uh, not just in a single country, uh, but in multiple countries and multiple markets. Um, and that has not been until very recently a very popular theme or trend uh, among uh, VC investors. Now it is, but unfortunately we got this like decoupling, you know, fragmentation thing. So at least we had like one little year in there where, where, where cross-border was really uh, popular. Um, but we'll, we'll see how, how it goes. Um, we've got a couple of uh, secret uh, sort of uh, unfair advantages um, uh, that we use to, uh, to, to stand apart. Uh, and that really helps our, our, our startups uh, because we are not a typical, sorry, we're not a typical VC. Yeah, I mean, I, I also love the message getting out that um, not every business has to lose money. And, and I also totally agree, as, as someone that's basically been in marketing and sales my whole life, if you don't need the sale, it's much easier. So raising money when you don't need the money is actually a lot easier. You, you can, you know, you, you don't, you're not against the clock where you're about to run out of money and, and some weird negotiation goes on, for example, right? So. So, it, and what I really love about what you're doing is, is this concept that you're helping people also generate that revenue. So the three X that you mentioned in, in your accelerator programs, I mean, that's so much value as far, as far as I'm concerned. And like you say, it creates their own ability to float. They're not you know, relying on someone giving them the boat. Um, and, I, and I think it's really, really interesting. Do you see any particular trends right now? Other than, I love the model of making money or, or at least having revenue. 
you know, what, 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 you mentioned AI just a moment ago for SoftBank, but what, what trends do you see? Are there anything particular in the last six months? So, um, you know, I think the, the thing that um, we've been working on for five years at Mox, our mobile accelerator, uh, it, it, we invest in consumer internet companies, and consumer internet companies have been very, very unpopular uh, for quite a long time uh, because of the unit economics. Uh, they, have they have very poor or negative unit economics. Uh, why? Because Google, Facebook, Amazon, Ali, Tencent, um, you know, these kind of monopoly type players, you know, cut off all the oxygen in the room and make it so the customer acquisition cost is much, much more higher uh, than lifetime value, the revenue that they'll make off those customers. And most VCs, uh, as I say, most VCs can do math. Uh, and spending a dollar to make 50 cents is stupid. Uh, so they just don't do it. Um, so it doesn't matter how good your product is. It doesn't matter how much your users love it. I mean, we've, we've got companies uh, that we invested in that when we're going in, we have a 40% 60-day retention on an app, which is uh, pretty crazy, right? That's high. It's like very, very high. But they, you know, nobody's going to fund them um, because they don't really have like a revenue model because it's like media or something. Uh, so what we try to do is innovate uh, in the venture space, uh, and we uh, cloned to some extent, we kind of cloned uh, Xiaomi or the WeChat model, or now the Reliant Geo model. Um, so, what we try and do, our unfair advantage is we try and uh, give free user acquisition to the mobile apps, mobile services that we work with. So, when your customer acquisition costs free, um, then it's actually quite easy to go profitable. Now, the problem is, uh, for the last five years, is no one would give us free customer acquisition. It's not like we're paid for it, we don't have any money, right? So, um, but over the last year, that's changed. Um, so, a lot of our partners are getting a huge amount of pressure um, from the ten, top 10 global big internet players. Uh, and the writing's on the wall that if they want to, you know, survive, they should uh, partner and change their model. Uh, so instead of, you know, charging an advertising fee, uh, uh, they should, uh, they're, they're open and much more open um, to promoting our products and services for free uh, in return for revenue share. Mm. And we're giving them a long-term recurring revenue stream, uh, which they can use uh, to, uh, you know, uh, stay relevant uh, as uh, the super apps go into every single uh, market and every single space in the world. I mean, and financials coming out, they want to be the number one financial product services company in the world. So where, where does that leave the banks? Where does that leave everyone else? Uh, so we're happy to partner with those banks and help those banks uh, fight back. Mm. Uh, and so just over the last six to 12 months, I mean, we, we were when we, you know, Three, two years ago, about two years ago, we had like three million monthly actives uh, of our Mox apps. Uh, a year ago, we were up to eight or nine million monthly active. Now we're somewhere between, we bounce between 70 and 80 million monthly active users of our Mox apps. Uh, why? Uh, because our partners are finally promoting us for free and we're sharing that revenue back with them. Mm. I, I think this is very powerful. I, I remember. Um being at uh, the uh, event in uh, Dublin with, um, with Sean, talking about how corporates uh, can definitely help startups. Yeah. And you know, some corporates yeah. won't get it and they see them as the enemy, but if they're smart, if corporates are smart, they'll partner up. I did a deal with AIA, they have 96 million monthly paying customers, yeah. where they could actually yeah. send a healthcare related product to those customers. So startups could get access to 96 million customers. You know, that, that, to your point, right, this, this, what you're offering there, the access, that's what they waste all yeah. that money on, yeah. right? That's what normally, you know, the, the, the big checks that goes to, like you say, buying a customer for a dollar that ends up generating 50 cents. And like you say, it just doesn't make sense. So bringing in those partnerships is, is so powerful. But do you see, is it fintech mainly that you're seeing right now? Because of course the banks are, you know, definitely getting disrupted. Is, is there any other um, silence? You know, fintechs are, is not particularly sticky, right? So there's there's monetization and there's an engagement, right? So we invest in both. We invest in, in products and services that engage, uh, but with because advertising is controlled by Google and Facebook, they don't monetize. So media apps, right? Super high engagement, but no revenue model. But then we also invest in the fintechs, 
Um, and and so what, what do we do? We have the uh, we have the companies that have the users, those media companies. Um, when they're using our app, we can actually credit score them, and then we can link those users to our fintech um, uh, companies. Uh, and uh, the media company can actually drive a consumer loan, mm-hmm. or the media company can actually drive uh, an insurance product sale or a mm-hmm. COVID health insurance sale, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so we're linking it together. So we have things that are sticky but don't make money, uh, like video. And on the other side, we have things that are not sticky but make money, uh, microloans, e-commerce. Um, we have uh, sometimes education, uh, and then finally um, the uh, games, you know, entertainment. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're linking it all together. Uh, think about it like a three-legged stool, uh, and our partners are, you know, telcos. Handset brands, banks, uh, retail chains, shopping malls—all the guys who are getting screwed by the big internet players. Yeah, because interestingly enough, what's actually happening? People like Alibaba, for example, they're they're doing all of these things themselves. They are a bank. They are they are doing fintech financial yeah. services. You know, like they, of course they are in in a way like Amazon have TV, right? They're, they're a media player. You know, like. But these these big uh, giants are also kind of ending up doing everything. So if these these competitors, the banks don't end up doing everything and they can't do it on their own, uh, then, then they're going to lose. And what you're saying there is you're basically helping a, a startup become all of those things by putting them in the network, right? Yeah. It's, it's a loose ecosystem. I mean, we're a VC fund. We're not trying to create another platform, right? Uh, we, we actually experimented with it. It didn't work. Uh, but uh, uh, it's a loose ecosystem, a decentralized, if you will, uh, ecosystem of companies that interact, uh, uh, cross-promote, uh, share revenue, uh, and uh, hopefully will become uh, symbiotic. It's a great value add, though. I mean, it, it'll be interesting to uh, talk about the ecosystem. It's been a dream for the last five, six years, and it's finally sort of becoming reality. Yeah. Um, at least we're getting the revenue share. Like the revenue share part is finally just turning on five years in. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but um, you know, with Reliance Geo taking off, um, uh, and you know they're in massive walled garden and impossible to partner with. Uh, but people are like, um, you know, our pitch is a lot easier now. You know, do you want to be Reliance Geo? Yes or no? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, which services do you want to offer? Uh, so we're having food delivery companies promote our game platforms because uh, the game platform actually increases retention. You know, you, you get your food delivery while you're waiting for the delivery instead of going to do some work or something or watching TikTok, you're playing games in the um, uh, delivery app. The delivery app actually gets uh, a rev share. And the funniest thing is we also have the drivers playing the games because it's good retention for the delivery company because instead of picking up a competitor's order, they're playing the game, they're getting loyalty points to the delivery app, uh, and then uh, the next order coming from the delivery app um, with the, the driver or rider uh, uh, games will just uh, uh, pause the game, and then uh, so our partners can actually block um, the riders from taking jobs from other platforms uh, with games. So you got to think a little bit outside of the box here. Yeah. I think it's, it's brilliant. I, I tried to do something similar in Hong Kong. I sold all my businesses in Hong Kong, as you know, uh, and moved yeah. back to London. But I did a similar thing. We had Nissan, AIA, and DBS Bank all working together to help startups. But, but, but they wouldn't work together with each other that easily because they had a lot of politics. But they could work together with the startup, and then the startup could promote all of their client bases and all of their data banks. It, 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 you, you've, uh, you've followed through on it. I, 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 uh, I had a similar idea, but you followed through on it. You've done such a great job, really. I mean, such, such admiration. Uh, yeah, you're, you're too kind. Mostly, I'm, um, I, I, uh, you know, I'm a sucker for punishment. We have this thing called a cockroach. And, you know, we get stepped on, lose a couple of legs, and refuse to give up. Um, so, uh, um, you know, we're, yeah, I started doing this, uh, what, 13, 12, 13 years ago. I took a 75% pay cut. Uh, there's about good six, seven years there where we didn't really take vacations. Um, and, you know, basically gone into debt to do this job, uh, to take this role. So kind of in there with the entrepreneurs themselves. Uh, and only, you know, it's the same as any entrepreneur, only after 11, 12 years, uh, start seeing, being able to, you know, pay off those debt, pay off the back taxes, uh, and start to have like a uh, normal uh, lifestyle. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I no longer have 
his tuition because I'm a VC. Yeah, but you, you, are, you are an entrepreneur, you see, so that's what I love. I think the, the more investors themselves were entrepreneurs, they'd understand the journey. So you're, you're, you're literally uh, living, living what you expect your, your companies you invest in to live, right? So, so you're you know, leading by example. Yeah. I did two startups, I was a really shitty CEO. Ha, me too, and I've done 17. I don't think there's anything such as a brilliant yeah. CEO. We're all, we're all learning. We're all learning. Yeah. So I've got a couple of questions and then I've got a, 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 a you know, my mission um, for this podcast is to help a million people start a business of their own. So I've got Rebecca in the waiting room. We'll be joining us in a minute. We're going to give her some advice. She's going to tell us about what she's up to. Just before we bring her in, um, I've got a few questions that have come up. I'll see what you think. Um, I don't know if you can read this, but uh, Jamie's saying, how do you make it decentralized, the ecosystem? Um, do all the companies have to go through the VC or is there a platform where they can find each other? I guess that's what you were talking about earlier when you say you tried it, but it didn't yeah. work that way, right? So it's decentralized in that there is no platform. They're, they're, um, they can all work with each other. They don't need us. Um, now, here's the thing. Um, um, there's a base level of trust because revenue share is very difficult to track, right? Uh, we use third-party attribution, so we know which users came from where. But in, in terms of like how much revenue was actually owed, uh, there needs to be a sense of trust. So we're... Um, you know, investors in all the, the, the companies. We don't take, you know, we take five, six, seven percent of each company. It's very small, um, but we are investors in uh, most of all the companies in the, or all the companies in the in the, in the, net, in the network. It's not even the network; it's more like an ecosystem. Um, the thing is that um, you know, if somebody wants to buy one of the companies, you know, be my guest, right? <laughs> We're a VC. That's called an exit. Uh, and if somebody wants to invest in one of the companies again, that would be wonderful. Uh, and so. The, the thing is that uh, we're not in the middle. Uh, we're not taking a revenue share. Uh, we're just there to facilitate. Uh, we do have a framework revenue share agreement, but if somebody wants to mess around with it, they can hire and make it lower. Um, uh, they can. And all the companies that are working together, generally over time, um, after they do an experiment and it's, it's kind of working, um, they actually just uh, sign an agreement between themselves. Uh, that makes sense for, for both parties. Uh, mostly we're kind of like a traffic cop where we have uh, a lot of startups of their capacity and, and resource constrained. So oftentimes, you know, the, the, the big startup that has a lot of users but no revenue, you know, they're like, uh, you know, we're ready, here we are, we'll promote you. Uh, but the, the other startup is not ready. And so we're a traffic cop trying to make sure that the two startups are, are kind of like uh, in sync. Um, in terms of the one saying, yes, I want to be promoted, and the other one, um, you know, actually being ready to promote, uh, right? So uh, uh, so we learned a lot. We, we did it a bunch of other different ways that failed. Um, the first two years of Mox was a shit show, uh, but, uh, but uh, we had some successes out of it, but the whole cross-promotion thing was a failure. Uh, that's just starting to take off over the last, uh, last uh, two, two and a half years. I think it's a very complex thing, as you say, um, you know, when, when trust is involved, yeah. if, if you don't have equity in these businesses, it's hard, it's hard, you know, your hard work, all that sacrifice, as you say, um, the, the, the debt you had to probably build up to put your kids through school to get to a point where it's working, you know, you've, you've invested in it. And sometimes, uh, unfortunately, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, China, London or New York, people will take advantage. So you, you need to have some sort of yeah. controls in there, well, right? We don't do this model in China. I think this model would be extremely difficult to do in China, um, but uh, we, we do it uh, Southeast Asia, South Asia. Our biggest markets are in India. Um, we actually, we do do one, one partner in, in China. Uh, that partner is so screwed that they don't really they don't have much choice. Uh, China Mobile used to be top three global telco. Uh, now they're EBITDA, uh, looks like, a, again, a ski slope. Um, um, you know, most of the management that used to be in charge are, jail uh, and uh, uh, but they're, 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 they've been an okay partner they're sort of willing to trust um, at least in the short term we'll and, and they, they were such works. a big player you're talking that decline is literally in the last four or five years because they have 700 million users you know the, the most popular yeah. network in the world right I mean so uh, yeah. You know, yeah but it just shows you what happens it doesn't matter how big you are services you know they used to make money while it's not services. Now there's basically a data company. They're a dumb pipe. Um, they don't really, you know, they've been uh, neutered by uh, Ali and Tencent and others. Mm, yeah. 
Is it, is it, you don't do it in China because the big, why, why, why is it not so much in China out of interest? Um, I think uh, China has a, a different uh, approach to trust. Um, so, um, I mean, most of the companies, they will only do the rev share model if they're actually processing the plane payments themselves, mm. right? Otherwise, it's uh, almost impossible to figure out what the revenue share should be. Mm. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, the playbook coming out of China, first you do payment, then you do e-commerce, and then you build from there, right? Mm. And that's what all the intents that have been doing outside uh, of China through all their investments. Mm. Um, so they're running that, that playbook. We're coming in a little bit later. We're, we're not big enough to actually do payment in most of the markets where we're operating, right? So... Uh, so we need to have uh, more of a sense of trust, and we we try and build that through the SOSB, China Accelerator, Mox, mm-hmm. you know, cross border internet community. Mm-hmm. Uh, we make it um, you know uh, very um, you know positive and good and rewarding uh, for people to be part of the community. One very strange thing, uh, we made a T-shirt out of it. Is what we call a Phoenix event, where we've actually had you know six entrepreneurs uh, and some co-founders, but uh, six companies that died. Uh, they're like dead, 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 dead. And then the one or, or both of the co-founders uh, started a new company. Uh, and they gave us equity in the new company um, uh, without uh, asking us to, to pay for it uh, in return for uh, remaining part of the community uh, with their, their new startup. Um, and I don't think that's normal in VC land. Uh, where um, the VC uh, gets free equity in the company's uh, in the founder's next company, uh, even though you know, because of the last one failed. Mm. I, I think that's incredibly ethical. And um, I was just reading about Ant Finance. We didn't ask them to do it. <laughs> well, but I think that sometimes you know the culture within your own business reflects in the businesses you work with, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, I've personally done that. I've I've had businesses that, that that didn't work, and then those investors that supported me when I did my next business. I, you know, I, I think it's important to look after those people, the people that back you yeah. when you have nothing. You know, I, I think it's a good message for people to pick up on, actually. If you back the people that backed you, you look after them, even if the first time they're backed you, it doesn't work. The payoff is, you know, for money aside, just, just the ability to sleep well at night and, and, and look back at your career and be proud of it. I think that's a great message. I really do. So glad, glad to hear that's happening. So look, let's bring on uh, Rebecca. Um, I've not met Rebecca, but she's got a story to tell. She's going to tell us what she's up to, and we're going to see how we can help her. Wonderful. Thanks. Hi. Hi there. Thanks for waiting. Nice to see you. No problem. Thanks for having me on. No problem at all. So William and I are here to uh, to help you. Let us know uh, what's going on. What can we do to help you? Okay. So I don't know if you got my bio, but I'll explain again anyway. Um, I am a teacher by trade, I've been teaching for 13 years and I was teaching business studies in high school um, and I'm currently doing some freelance stuff in education and this has given me an opportunity to set up my own little side project which is something that I felt there has been in need for for a while in like in teaching business in high school. Oh, sorry, I'm just trying to make the camera work. Um, so basically what, what we have in, in education is reference, we have our lessons, but we have our reference materials, which is textbooks, and then it's the internet. And the issue with textbooks in business is that they go out of date as soon as they're published. So we were, we were teaching marketing using textbooks that were written 10 years ago, and there's nothing in those textbooks really about social media marketing. So. Um, it doesn't kind of work in today's sort of fast-moving environment. And then you've got the other resource, which is the whole World Wide Web. And unfortunately, for even though there's so much information out there, that's quite overwhelming for a high school student to, to sort of trawl through all that information. So the, the side project that I'm making of my product is a sort of online reference material that will be targeted specifically to high school business students. So I've constructed a website over the past month, which breaks it down into all the different units that are covered on business studies courses. Um, so I'm writing all the theory that um, we sort of teach anyway. But then I've been arranging interviews with people in business that link to those different units that the students learn. Um, so I did a, an interview with a, um, a sole trader last week, and she talked about her experiences and what's challenging about being a sole trader and you know what she really enjoys about it. I've got an interview with an NGO next week, an event planner tomorrow, and all of those interviews I'm going to sort of link to this online resource so the students, as they're sort of reading through 
um, the content of the theory that they need to learn for the course, they can then kind of watch, make it be brought to life with someone's real experiences in business rather than just me as a teacher or something that's written down. So the reason I actually got in touch with you is because I listened to your podcast and that you've done with Jules in Hong Kong, and she's one of my friends, and it was about your startup story on Hong Kong Confidential. Mm. So I initially contacted you so I could interview you. Um, oh, right. So I could put that onto this resource, and then I've ended up getting interviewed. Ah. <laughs> but now this year I'm just saying yes to things, so Fair that was when I went along with it. But, so but yeah, so that, that's what I'm doing, and it's targeted to the high school students, and it's making um, all those kind of problems and decisions and options that you have in different areas of business, which is what essentially the content of the course is, mm-hmm. but making it really accessible and fun to students of that age group who perhaps would be quite overwhelmed by, you know, reading a sort of a thesis on, on an area of business, so... Yeah, really interesting. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, I'll definitely do the interview, and now you know William, he's also, frankly, uh, probably more interesting than me to interview. His experience is extensive, and I think a lot of your students will find what William knows quite, quite useful as well. Um, but my quick view, and William, William, feel free to jump in, but my quick view on it, it's a really good idea, actually, uh, Rebecca. Where are you at with it? What are your problems? Are you, are, are you, um, you, know, you mentioned you're still doing your, your, your teaching job, right? So you're, you're, you're balancing this as a part-time venture? No, I'm not. I'm actually on a year out, so oh, I'm great. doing... So one of, a job that I was supposed to be doing this year is um, doing school visits on schools. I'm, I'm based in Hong Kong. And schools around Southeast Asia to do checks, but obviously with the travel ban, that's on hold for the minute, so I've got all this time to do that. And I'm doing a bit of writing for a publishing company, which, you know, I can do sort of part-time. So, and the main problems with it is, um, you know, it's just kind of, well, actually, just having time to do it. It's taking quite a while to kind of write stuff up, but I'm really enjoying it, and I'm not in a massive hurry to do it, because I've also got another sort of site income coming in from elsewhere. Um, I've been learning the skills has been a challenge. So two weeks ago, I didn't know how to design a website and then my friend showed me and now I've got a full website that I just need to populate the content. And then the next step is gonna be sort of learning how to how to edit a video. But I made a website two weeks ago, so I think I can edit a video next week. So yeah, those kind of IT skills that I've kind of, I've kind of known a bit about, but now I have to do a really good job of. That's been a, you know, the, the steep learning curve at the moment. Yeah, and then just having time to, to sort of, you know, do that properly. Mm. I didn't realise you were in Hong Kong for some reason. I thought you were in London. Maybe it's just, just uh, your, your accent got me... So, we're, But it's interesting. I mean, for, as far as... Uh, is it a global play? Is it a local play? Do you see this as a, as a big business, a tech play? What, what's your kind of vision for it long term? Um, so the student... So the course I'm basically targeting initially is the BTEC business course. And that's very popular in the UK, but also in international schools. So I was working in international schools in Hong Kong, and it's it's the students usually choose IB or they choose BTEC as, as their options. So it is, you know, there is sort of globally um, a target audience for it, um, but mainly in the UK. Um, and this, the website, as opposed to monetize it, eventually will be a sort of subscription and you get a, a username and password. And we've used products like that in the past, but they haven't been directly targeted towards the courses that we're teaching. Mm. So you're kind of, as a teacher, sort of, you know, translating a, a resource that's perhaps targeted to different. Mm-hmm. So who kind of, which side's got the biggest problem? Is it the teachers or the students? Or, um, I mean, who's, uh, I guess you're solving both, both sides' pain? Um, but are you, are you hoping to uh, get the teachers or schools to pay, or are you hoping to try and get the students to pay, or some combination thereof? I mean, a combination thereof would, would be quite good, um, but pro- what I'd probably do is target students, and then you can just get the individual login. But once I've got my sort of min- my MVP, what I'm going to do is I'm going to roll it out to a couple of schools that you know, I've got friends in and they're going to use it with their students and I'm going to get feedback before I make any big decisions on that. So yeah. it's in the early stages at the moment. But have you shown it to your friends pre-MVP? Like uh, just like a sketch of what it would look like and what it does? Got their feedback early? The earlier you get the feedback from both the students and from the, the, the teachers of the schools, the, the better it is. Yeah, so I've been getting, not from students, but from teachers. And they're really excited about it, and yeah, 
they're really looking forward to, to it being available. That's what they say. <laughs> why, why not chat to students to, uh, as well? What, what's, that would be an interesting demographic to get feedback on. Yeah, no, that's a good point, actually. I think I've just been showing it to my friends because it's very sort of, um, you know, it, it's a very rough outline at the moment, and I was kind of thinking, oh, I'll just get a few more units on there and then kind of yeah. broadcast cast it a bit more. But, yeah, I can get them to show it to students this week. Yeah. I mean, um, there's something called Lean Startup Machine, or, you know, it's 54 hours to get uh, mock-ups into the market, um, interviewing people, and then, you know, launch. And we have, we have known people who made $5,000 in revenue uh, with a product that didn't exist uh, in that 54-hour period. Uh, so, um, I would, um, you know, I would uh, actually study about how to, um, you know, figure out whether something works first before building it. Um, you can actually do a lot of the things that you want to do uh, that are taking you so much time um, by just mocking it up and faking it. Um, you know, this is not fake it until you make it. It's actually just show what people what it would look like and try to get their feedback. Uh, and sometimes you can just do it on scripts of paper uh, where you have a, like a little fake phone and then you run the script, you know, the, the, the paper down uh, and show people what they would be looking. And that takes you know, like a couple hours or an hour afternoon uh, and so people can get a sense of what it looks like and then you know you look at their face whether they're frowning or happy and uh, so that can help uh, accelerate um, the other thing is a lot of these teachers probably have a lot of this content already themselves um, so uh, while you're out there talking to the teachers ask whether they would share um, the content with you so that you don't have to do all of it um, and uh, usually there's a model where you know based on uh, who's looking at what content you can uh, you know give them a, a, a small revenue share or something like that uh, for contributing to the, the platform um, there's a very popular very large comp uh, company in the US um, that um, uh, is actually a sharing resource for all teachers uh, and uh, I forgot the name of it but they've done very very so much a platform for the students to access uh, the content, but a place for all the teachers to share best practices and content and extra materials and workbooks and whatever, uh, a lot of which they made themselves. Uh, and, uh, and also, uh, they allow those teachers to, to monetize, but the, the teachers are paying, uh, not necessarily the students. Um, and that's problematic because most teachers around the world don't have uh, very much money. Um, but um, they do have access to the students. So if you can actually figure out a way uh, through the teachers to get to the students and get those students to open up their checkbooks, uh, then um, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's something that can be quite interesting. Uh, we invested in a company called SnapAsk. Um, uh, they went through our China Accelerator program. Um, they're based out of Hong Kong, uh, and you know, they're used by the students. It's like a, an app that, that allows a tutor to come on live um, and they've been able to scale really well uh, because the students are paying, not the schools, not the teachers. Yeah. William pretty, took, pretty much took the words out of my mouth. I mean, do you know what he's talking about with Lean Startup? You, you know what he's talking about there, Eric Ryan's book? You want to get this book if you don't know about it, Rebecca. Do you know about it? What's it called? Lean, it's called the Lean Startup. L-E-A-N. Lean, yeah. Lean, lean, yeah. lean, lean. Startup, nobody is lean. And yeah. The opposite of fat. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Uh, but um, and then there's a, a there's um, there's a uh, um, there's some square out there. Uh, there's something called a canvas, a lean canvas. There's a bunch of different canvases, but check out the lean canvas or the canvases. Um, these are tools that you can use uh, to um, figure out you know what your your product, you know, minimum viable product should be before you invest all the time and energy to actually create the minimum viable product because the um, I, I can tell you I spent a lot of time, a year and a half of my life, um, getting the license to uh, Cartoon Network uh, in China um, as an individual I licensed it. Uh, and uh, the funny thing is like, after I spent a year and a half of my life you know, doing some meetings here and there, getting the license to Cartoon Network, uh, I finally showed the Cartoon Network video was in China and I realized why they gave it to me. Nobody cares about Cartoon Network content in China. It was absolutely horrible and I could have saved myself a year and a half if I just pirated the content, put it up and see if anybody watched it. Yeah, such, right. such yeah. great advice. Yeah. I mean, I, I, just, just to add, I mean, sometimes I think 
when starting a business, you know, and I, and I like to hear you building the website. I'm not, I'm not at all uh, saying you shouldn't do that, Rebecca. I get, you know, you've got to build some infrastructure that gives you what perhaps is a presented credibility piece, right? But, but I would say that, you know, I, I started a garden.